The players of the United States women's national soccer team have never backed down from a setback or challenge. By continuing to fight for equality over the years, the players hope to leave the team in a better place than they found it. Listen to today's guest to learn about how the team has changed over time, the inequalities they continue to face, and what is needed to continue growing the sport. Hi, welcome to this episode of Benched. This is your host, Jules Makia, with our wonderful guest, Thori Bryant. Thank you so much for joining us, Thori. Thank you for having me. Yes, so Thori has quite the soccer career. She's played professionally. She had an amazing collegiate career at NC State, where she was a four-time All-ACC, three-time NCAA All-American, and the Female Athlete of the Year in 1994, as well as she had a professional career, and then she played with the women's national team as well. So we're honored to have you here, and we wanted to start off by talking about your collegiate experience and how playing at NC State was. So I wanted to know what drew you to NC State to play. I mean, honestly, people talk about decisions. It's like all the right conditions culminated at the same time and made my comfort level like a hundred. I only took like four recruiting trips, I believe. And the week before I was actually at Carolina. It was December. It was cold. It was rainy. The weather was horrible. My host lost me. So I was lost in downtown trying to find my people. And it was just, it was just kind of crazy. And then the following weekend I went to NC State and it was like 75 degrees. It was sunny. Everything was like the birds were chirping. (laughs) It was just, that's how it was. So I was like, oh, it feels so great. And basically that's how I made my decision. So it wasn't, it wasn't about the soccer. It was just, I felt comfortable there. And it just felt like everything was meant to be, to be there. Kelly told me you were also a track athlete and you played lots of sports growing up. So what made you want to play soccer instead of all these other sports and eventually, you know, go to college for it? Yeah, the honest answer is when I was young, I just, I like to do a bunch of different stuff. So it was kind of hard to hold my interest. <laughs> I was all over the place, but I just loved it. I fell in love with the game. I loved it more than anything else. So that's the short answer. I did track. I was a heptathlete and my parents were like, okay, listen, that soccer stuff is fun, but <laughs> we need to concentrate on this. <laughs> so it, it was interesting because they were always like, okay, that's fun and all, but this is the goal. And I think after a while, they're like, okay, you, you really seriously, you know, want to pursue this. So they started to take it more seriously because obviously I loved it. So that's how the, all that shook out. When did you begin playing with the national team? At what age? Like, was it during college or before or after? It was my freshman year of college. So, again, I was running track on a, on a national level. So a lot of kids, you know, especially these days, they're specialized. And when they're in high school, they're only playing one sport and they take that route. So I couldn't do the other leagues or state team, regional, all that stuff. I never participated in because I was always running track in the summers. So it was a different route from most of the other people that ended up being on the national team. What was the feeling, the atmosphere when you got there? 
you know, it's obviously a dream of any player to make it to the, up to the national team to get that call. To be honest with you, I was terrified. <laughs> I had no idea what to expect. Short story, I got the letter and, you know, it says you need to wear Adidas gear. And I was like, I don't have Adidas cleats. And my parents are like, well, we're not buying cleats. So I ended up borrowing like a teammate's Adidas cleats, not knowing that they give you cleats there because I had no idea. So I borrowed her cleats. They were like a size too big. And then I get there and people are like, yeah, did you have my cleats ready for me? And I'm like, what is that? I don't understand. And they're like, do you, do you need cleats? I was like, do you have cleats? <laughs> so it was funny because I played, I did the whole first camp and my teammates cleats, they were a size too big. Oh my gosh. Okay, so what was the time frame that you were on the national team? It was before the 1999 team, right? Yes. So my first camp was my freshman year in 92. And then I was in the 95 World Cup, which was in Sweden. And then I was in and out after that for, I don't know how many years. So who were some of the big names on the team at the time? Yeah, so it was Mia Hamm, Christine Lilly. Carla Overbeck, all of that first original, Julie Foudy. I don't want to leave people out. Don't put me on the spot. I don't have a good memory. I blame it on heading too many soccer balls. <laughs> so what was it like to be with some of those people that are now kind of known to be the mothers of soccer? Like they kind of started this upward trend of getting women involved in soccer and you know, what was it like to play with some of these people that are literally like still known internationally as some of the best soccer players to come through? I think the cool thing about that group and what people don't understand, it's a totally different environment now because, I mean, this generation, you guys have been given so much and we kind of had so little. All of them were down to earth. There wasn't anybody that was like, even though they were like superstars, there wasn't anyone that acted that way. We literally had to unload our own equipment every trip. So it was just a process. You, you fly for like 18 hours, you get off the plane. The whole team is carrying like big, heavy crates of all the equipment, soccer balls, all of that are in crates. And we're all just toting it as a group, whether you're a star, whether you're not, everybody's doing the same thing and just put in work. And that's how it was. They set the tone for that. So any new person coming in knew that if they were going to do that, you had to go above and beyond and, and work. When you're not playing, you're still part of the team and everybody cooperates together. And I really respect all of that group because they were, you know, they were there before I got there. And they fought extremely hard for the team to be where they are right now. I mean, they were fighting. They had lawyers involved. And it's taken like almost this long just to get what they were fighting for. Yeah, and, and there's still a lot of work left to be done. I mean, there's been a setback already in the lawsuit that some of the current players have filed. So it's sad to see that all this work has been put in and still they're not where they want to be. Yeah, I think it's inspiring too that every player that has gotten involved in this movement throughout the years knows that it won't necessarily benefit them, but it'll benefit the next generation and like... The 1990s teams have benefited the early 2000s, early 2000s, you know, later 2000s, and, and hopefully five, ten years down the road, there will be monumental change from everything that's gone in. But 
No, it's so crazy to hear that. And could you give us more insight about what it was like to be on the team at the time, like the conditions? Cause I know it's very different than it was today. Like you're saying about traveling. Could you give us like an outrageous story of, wait, I'm on the national team, but this is not what you would expect type thing. Yeah. So with me being young and not knowing what to expect, I just thought it was normal until, <laughs> until we were out at the, the men's complex or something with the men's team. They were training and we're watching and we saw that they have people that move their goals. We can't even get a massage therapist on a regular basis and they have people to move their goals. We had to bring our own food and they have people to move their goals. That was the realization that was, was like, wait a minute. <laughs> we would do um, we, just crazy stuff. The conditions sometimes, sometimes the conditions of when we were playing, like I remember one stadium in China, it literally had a hole for a toilet. Like that was, it was a hole. Oh no. Oh my gosh. I can imagine the kind of anger because I've had it myself of like, you go into this men's facility and you see, you're like, are you kidding? I couldn't get something this basic. I couldn't get food. I couldn't get treatment from a massage therapist or a PT, but somebody is doing something like moving their goals and to us that's like such a simple thing at the time were you angry disappointed or as you've gotten older and you've seen more inequality from the outside now and a lot of it's gotten exposed like what are your thoughts feelings opinions around all of it i mean of course i'm gonna have a different perspective because i'm a black woman in america if i sit there and ponder on inequalities and stuff i'll be doing that all day so it's just like really you're supposed to be on the national team but but I'm like, oh, well, that's life. Move on. It's like you, you can't change it at the moment. So, you know, in your mind, you're like, it's messed up. But what can you do at, at that moment? Like, I can't ponder and stay in that headspace of how it's not fair. Did you also find it difficult to, like, even have those thoughts or think about it? Or, like, even think about action behind them? Because it was, like your goal was to be there and like you didn't want to put that in jeopardy by any means. Well, I think because I was so young and because I was so green, like I didn't, those thoughts never entered my mind. It was the the women that were already there and that leadership that was putting things into motion. And I was, I was just along for the ride. I was like, okay, so what's going on? How is this going to work? But I mean, I wasn't in a position mentally to be able to understand everything that it takes to do that. Are you proud to see how far the team has come and like how hard the women are working to try to bridge this gap and get what they deserve? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's an uphill battle, but it's one worth fighting. And I think, like you said, it, it's an unselfish thing because they're not necessarily going to benefit from it. Yeah, I wanted to ask too, like you played in the older version of the NWSL, the one that had folded. Right. What was it like in the league and then what was it like when it collapsed? Like how did it impact you, your career, that type of stuff? First of all, it was amazing. I can't speak for other experiences, but I was in San Jose and it was absolutely amazing. I mean, we had a great fan base. We interacted with our fans. Um, the organization was impeccable. Um, from the leadership down, our GM was awesome. And it was just, it was a special time. I, I reflect on that and it was definitely one of the 
best times of my life, especially playing because it was just, I hadn't really been in a, an environment before where you just had all the support that you needed. It felt really nice. As far as the timing goes, I was ready for a change anyway, since I had been there for three years, I was either going to try and trade and come back home and be with my husband and in stages, I was just ready to start my real life. So it kind of worked out for me that that happened at that moment because I was thinking of transitioning anyway, back here to North Carolina and starting a family and all of that. What were the emotions though when the league folded? Were you disappointed that this league for women folded and it was no more? I was sad. I was sad that they couldn't make it work of the reasons I felt like it didn't work. Because again, that's overall organization. I I feel like we got the crowds we should have gotten. And it was disappointing that, you know, we couldn't make it work. And it was such a good environment and atmosphere and gave more women an opportunity to be able to carry out their dream. So I guess it was kind of all of those emotions, like sad, disappointed, all balled up into one. Yeah. What were, you know, I'm not super familiar with the league, so I'm curious to know, like, what were some of the reasons why you think it folded and, like, some of the issues it had? Well, I'm not sure because, again, like I said, I don't go into the depths of this and that. I kind of just move on because that stuff will make my head hurt. But you hear stuff, and I just feel like you have to assume there's going to be some loss, but you also have to figure out where you're going to level out and when you're going to start making money and your expectations of how that's going to happen. Because there was discussion at the beginning whether they should be backed by the MLS and this and that, because that's how the WNBA did it. Have you been excited to see the rapid growth of the NWSL and kind of, I feel like they learn from some of the mistakes. And I also think a lot of investors and people have bought in and they're like, women's sports are important. We've seen a lot of female ownership. I know the new LA team has a lot of female ownership. And then are you excited to see that kind of growth and that kind of buy-in and investment in women's sports? Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting because the argument used to be, okay, the viewership's not the same and justify the difference by saying, you can't fill a stadium, this, 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 and that. But as we go back to the national team, same thing. We would be at some venues where there wouldn't be a lot of people and people would be like, yeah, I didn't even know you guys were here. I just found out today and came. So when you look at that and you look at the men's team who's being marketed all over the place and you're saying, of course you're not going to fill stadiums if you don't market. If our marketing budget is zero... (laughs) You're not going to fill stadiums. If you just put a flyer at the local VFW, we're not going to fill stadiums. So I think it's interesting now because we're at a a time and point where the viewership for women's sports, whether it's soccer or basketball, I mean, we're seeing that as well, is higher and higher and being able to compete with the men's sports as well. So you can't use that excuse anymore saying, well, you don't have the viewership. Well, And they're two completely different games. Like the women's game is completely different from the men's games. It's a different game. You're going to see different things. So I just think it's really interesting, but I feel like the viewership of 
women's soccer has, you know, it was already more explosive. Now men's soccer is trying to compete with women's soccer. Yeah. I I mean, I think it's so interesting. You know, I was telling you, I watched the new LFD documentary and I've been following the lawsuit for years, but I think my favorite stat to pull, like when people are like, men's soccer is still more popular. I'm like, that's actually false. Despite all the barriers the women have had to overcome, they have the most watched soccer game in the US. Like, that stat doesn't lie. The marketing isn't there for the women. And like you see that at all levels of sport. I talk about it all the time at Carolina, at any college. For example, Carolina has some of the most successful women's programs, yet we are not marketing our women's games the same way we market a Saturday football game, no matter how good our football team is at the time. So, you know, I think that's like such a big issue, but it's interesting, you know, things are starting to change and I'm really curious to see, you know, how the NWSL does. And I'm really happy with the way things are going. But another thing that is a little bit disheartening is even still today, these women aren't making a livable wage. And in the documentary, Jessica McDonald was talking about it. And she's somebody who's on the national team. And she also has a son. And she's like, I literally don't make a living wage. Like, it's hard for me to make ends meet. What was your experience with that? You were young, so you still, you know, had some flexibility. But did you see your teammates, your friends struggle? Did you struggle financially? You know, especially people who had a family. And did you ever see people retire early so that they could you know start their lives a lot of people can still play professional sports and have a life but a a lot of those people are men so like what was your experience with that when you were in the league absolutely all the time you had to make a decision it's like especially when I was playing and you know there's no league you go overseas you can make some money over there but you're in a different country (laughs) and then when the league was established here it gave many people more options Because again, once you finish, it's like, do I continue to try to still compete and go train with the national team? Because at that point, if you weren't in an Olympic year or World Cup year, you would just come into camp when they had camp would be like 10 days. And you would come into camp, get selected for a roster, play games and go back (laughs) to your life. So if you don't have a flexible job, you have to make a decision. And some people, they don't have a choice. If you're not living at home or if you don't have a spouse that can carry the weight, you can't make that decision. You have to work. You have to eat. But it's it's so sad to like hear that because you're like, you know, I worked my whole life. This should be a career and it's not financially stable. And from what I've, you know, I heard in the documentary and what I know, like people leave in the prime of their career because it's just not feasible. Yeah, I've seen it. I mean, again, I, I was blessed to be able to, you know, have a support system to be able to pursue it and do it. Even I was, I was working before the league started. I was working and I was like, okay, so I'm going to quit this job. (laughs) I'm going to go to the combine, see what happens. And then I'll just quit this job. And I got drafted to San Jose, which is furthest away from my, I'm like, yeah, I could play here. I could go, you know, be in Philly. I could be in DC. I'm in San Jose. So I was like, okay, quit this job and just go do that. And my husband's left himself just working to support us. I think it's interesting you say too, like you had a support system. So are you saying like if you didn't have these people to help support you financially and like emotionally and everything, you would not have been able to play? 
No, I mean, and I was in one of the most expensive places in the U.S. I mean, I was in Silicon Valley. So, I mean, back then, that's 20 years ago. And everything was super expensive. And there wasn't, that was the thing about our league too. There wasn't an adjusted living cost. If I were making the same amount of money in Carolina, it was like double the amount of money. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. Yeah, so... I mean, it's like, if I don't have a support system, I don't have a family that's helping to take care of me and, you know, my husband can't support me. That would have been an over and done conversation. It's like, we can't, we can't do this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Did you take a break from playing competitively and then come back and play with the Railhawks? Yeah, it was, I mean, I had my son at that point. So it was just, you know, I wanted to play on some level. Obviously I was not the same. <laughs> I wasn't in tip top shape, but it filled the need for me. I just wanted to be able to play because I still, you know, had an itch to play. So it was fun. It did what I needed it to do. You know, it filled that void for me. So when did you start coaching and like what made you want to start coaching? I would say I'm not sure of the timeline. I get foggy on time because it all runs together. But I've always like my dream is to be able to have like a club where just any kid that wants to play is able to play. There's no barriers. Just be able to come out, find the love of the game first and just play and have creativity and be free to play how you want. And I, I think with as much as we do a great job in this country of development and what have you, as far as money is concerned, we don't do a great job of how we develop players to be creative. And I enjoy working with youth and I just enjoy lifting kids up because a lot of times we, you see kids get beat down so much. I enjoy lifting kids up and and boosting their morale and just seeing them smile and enjoy the sport and enjoy whatever they're doing, just boosting them up so they can feel like I've done something good, you know, I'm worthy and I'm worth it. So is that what inspired you to start your soccer academy? Yes. Mm -hmm. When did you found that? Sorry, again, I'm asking you times. Um, was it after your career or? It was after you finished playing and whatever. And probably my son was young. I don't remember. I'm like, I can't put a date on it. It'll hurt my head to try. What has made you want to stay so involved with youth soccer and development? And why are you still so passionate about the sport? Again, I love the game. And I feel like it is, it's a passionate game. You know, you give everything you have and blood, sweat, and tears, and you get all of that <laughs> in a soccer game. And it's just, it's, it's really unique because, I mean, I've been many places in the world and the culture of it is different every place. And it's just one game can like unite the whole world. That's amazing. This one game, you can go anywhere in the world and you can play, you know, you can pick up. I went to Costa Rica on vacation and they had little stick goals on the beach. And I was like, oh, it's so cute. You know, like I get joy out of that, watching that. You know, it's just, it's a really unique situation of how you can see the game and, and how you can see the world. And it can just bring people together at the same time. 
Yeah. So speaking of bringing people together, obviously the Olympics are this summer. What are you most excited about soccer-wise? Who are you excited to see play? You know, what did you think of the roster that was released last week and that type of stuff? Do you have any thoughts, comments, etc.? First of all, I'm hoping that it happens. I'm just watching that and I'm like, I would feel horrible for all of these athletes if it didn't happen and it didn't happen authentically like they're already saying you know people can't watch like is it yeah. really the olympic experience if you can't have people yeah. cheering you know so i'm trying not to get wrapped into it i don't really want to get into it until it actually happens and see so i'm trying to keep a little bit of distance because i'm like you know i get wrapped up and i was like oh I want the, you know, you you feel yeah. for like certain people and you're like, oh gosh, because I mean, it's two years. It, like, if it doesn't happen now, it's not going to happen. I really think it'll happen. I really think it will because people are so financially invested in it. Like they will make it happen. It will happen. But whether or not there's fans, I think is the biggest sway. Because I've been seeing a lot of articles where it's like, I'm like, eh, I guess it makes sense. They've had a couple athletes already start testing positive, but I would think with Tokyo, they'd be testing people probably every day to try to stop an outbreak. So hopefully something like that doesn't happen to anybody there. But can I ask who your favorite player, current favorite player is? Do you have one or a couple? Yeah, I have a couple. I I mean, I enjoy watching the team. I mean, I, I, I won't, I won't narrow it down to one player. You're not gonna get me there. What wait? What position did you play? Were you a forward? Defender. Oh, oh, defense. Okay, so I'm totally off. I got one goal though. I have one goal. I got the call up for one international goal. I only got called to go up there one time, and I scored, so I'm excited. One for one. But yeah, there's a lot of players that I enjoy, and they do different things. Like you can never compare players because they they do different things. Like I wait. I like one player for her vision and what she sees. And I like a different player because I just like to see her acceleration. And so it's different players doing different things. So I'm not gonna pick one. Well, I'm excited to see, I think Carly Lloyd's been a big one throughout the years. I'm, I'm interested to see if this is gonna be, you know, if they go out on top, I'm interested to see if she's gonna be like, this is it. I think it might be for her. I think she might be like, this is this is it for me internationally. But, you know, so I'm hoping to see things go out really well because I think for her, I think she might say this is it. And it's also way harder to make the Olympic roster because they're only taking 18. So I think it was really impressive. She made it. And she's also like the oldest player to make it on a World Cup team. I think, is she 41, I think? But anyways, so I wouldn't say she's like my all-time favorite player, but just because I followed her throughout the years, I really hope she has a good World Cup or a good uh, Olympic experience so like she can she can go out on top if if that's what she decides to do. Um, I wouldn't be surprised kind of following everyone's careers. I feel like people try to go out on a on a big one. I have a lot of respect for her. I had a chance to speak with her. We had a little reunion type thing and you know, I didn't know her at all, but just speaking to her, she's a really authentic person. And I do, I hope that she can go out like with a big bang if this is what she wants to do. But I do, I respect her a lot. And as hard as she works, I would love her to reap the benefit. Yeah, I'm also hopeful for the team in general. 
to win another big title just so that they can throw it in the face of U.S. soccer and be like, there's no denying us now. So I'm really hopeful for them this summer and it'll be interesting. But I wanted to kind of close out and ask you two more questions. The first one is, what is the most important thing you would tell young athletes today and specifically young female athletes today? I think the best advice that I have ever been given was concentrate on what you do well and do it to the best of your ability. And everything else, just filter out. Because everybody's going to tell you, you're never going to be good enough at everything. And I think as females, we process things like, oh, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. Instead of saying, listen, I'm really good at this. (laughs) Let me focus on that. So that's the best advice I've ever been given. And I would give that to any kid. You know, and, and that is outside of sport too. Do what you do and do it. Shoot for the moon and do it. And then my very last question is, if you could see one change in the women's game today, you know, support-wise, funding-wise, whatever, what would it be and why? For the women's game, I would like to see, I mean, I know the youth system changes so much in how they're doing things. They had the academy and now they don't. They keep changing things and systems in order as your pathway to get into the national team. I would like to see a pathway that doesn't involve not necessarily any of the pathways that they set up. So a kid could still be identified and brought in without pursuing one of the pathways. And the second thing, which is all of US soccer, I think my perspective is that everywhere else, most other countries, soccer is a poor sport and here it's a rich sport. So I would like to see that change. I would like to see any kid be able to play regardless of money. If you really wanna pick from the best and be able to have any kid be able to play and have the the opportunity to play, we need to take that cost prohibitor out. Now, I don't know how to do that, (laughs) but I think we need to provide a pathway to do so, whether it be scholarships for kids at, at every level. I don't know what that looks like, but I mean, U.S. soccer has enough funding to be able to create something. For sure. This has been wonderful, Thori. I am so grateful for this conversation and thank you everyone so much for tuning into this episode of Benched. This is your host, Jules Makia, with our wonderful guest, Thori Bryant. Thank you, Thori. Thank you. Have a great day. Want to share your story? Whether you prefer to share on a podcast, in a video, on a panel, or in a written blog, we cannot wait to hear from you. Just go to you n-c-u-t-chapelhill.com. That's uncutchapelhill.com. Click get involved and then share your story. Amplifying your voice has never been so easy.